it seems like creatives always get a bad rap. From childlike tantrums and ridiculous green room requests, strange superstitions, and even self-mutilation, it's clear that artists have plenty of strange habits. But they've also made a pretty big impact on the world. Hi, I'm Kate Rooney. And I'm Jess Scuffy. And you're listening to Creatives Are the Worst, presented by Design Pickle, the leading flat rate graphic design and creative services platform. In this podcast, we'll be uncovering the fascinating myths and shocking stories behind the artists we love, or in some cases, love to hate, as we try to determine, are creatives the worst? Hello, and welcome to Creatives Are the Worst, presented by Design Pickle. I'm Jess Guffey, and I'm joined by the effervescent Kate Rooney. Hello, Kate. Hey, Jess. What was your description again? Your word? Erudite, erudite, which I'd never heard before. You're so erudite. Thanks to our producer for teaching us new vocabulary words every day. Yeah. <laughs> I'm feeling very effervescent this morning. I can't wait to hear who you're covering today. Let's do it. Let's do it. Per usual, this person, per- this person that I was covering, <laughs> hello, I'm Sean this Connery. <laughs> uh, there is a lot of information out there. And a little bit harder to track down all the accurate information. So I did my best. But if I'm missing anything or if I get anything wrong, please let us know at podcastdesignpickle.com. Shout out to Design Pickle, the leading creative services and graphic design subscription service. We are proud picklers. Um, But yeah, just everything I say is based off my research and is my opinion slash our opinions being... Jess and Kate. <laughs> That's us. It's Hashtag hot takes. Hot takes over here. So step right up, step right up. Today, we are going to talk about the mystical, the enigmatic, the sometimes pretty problematic Prince of Humbugs, Phineas Taylor Barnum, a.k.a. P.T. Barnum, a.k.a. the greatest showman on earth. Oh man, Catherine, mm. you're doing it. We're doing it. We are, are doing, doing it. it. This is already a circus of a podcast. Exactly. <laughs> it's very thematic. <laughs> Just remember when I texted you the other day and I was like, I don't know. I don't know if I should do this person anymore. This is like, I feel like there's, there's a lot of problems here and we'll, we'll get into why, but yep. I was very unsure about covering this person. Just because uh, he did a lot of things were, that were very problematic, as we'll come to find out. Well, we will determine if he's the worst or not. We will determine. But as I kept researching and I did more, I mean, some things came up and I was like, okay, I'm glad I'm covering him. I mean, he definitely did some bad things, but he also did some good things and he definitely, you know, carved a path for others. So have you seen the movie? <laughs> Funny you should ask. I have not seen the movie. I was I had planned to before for this podcast and I watched the trailer and immediately was like this is bullshit. I was already so annoyed. <laughs> and I love you Jackman. I love like I adore him. I such a great cast. But just from the trailer alone I was like this is so wrong. This is such a like glorified version of what really happened and it just kind of made me like ugh. But then, so I, I kept telling Leo, my husband, I was like, well, we have to watch it. We have to watch it this weekend. And we paid a whole $4 to rent it. 
<laughs> started to watch it and we were both like what the hell is this <laughs> like we we couldn't yeah. even get through it because well to be fair we're not huge fans of musicals and stuff like that and is a musical neither am i and i i really liked what's that movie uh moulin rouge so i got some vibes from that mm. but i felt like this was a little too yeah. kitschy and eh. It was over the top. I think I watched it on a plane one time, and I just remember my brow was furrowed the entire time. People probably <laughs> thought I was watching like a drama or something. But I just yeah. was confused. Your brow might get more <laughs> furrowed after you hear this story, but yeah, like I, I tried, oh, but I had boy. already done the research and I knew the real story behind it. I'm like, this is all just Hollywood. Yeah, they made it seem like he was this advocate for everyone and he was super duper woke you know i think i texted leo when i was watching the trailer i was like this is super duper woke can we go back to that (laughs) for reals though because in the trailer it was like the people in a show the bearded lady are like pt you've done it all you've you've helped us do this and this like we wouldn't be here without you and i was like come on he was exploiting all of you that's not the real story well, uh, good to know. If you disagree with us on that, please, please <laughs> let, us let, let us know if you love the movie. Hugh Jackman, if you're angry about it, just email me directly. Um, I will keep an eye out for that email. <laughs> but I think exploitative is a very good way to start out with this. Like, I, He's very exploitative. I came to learn that he definitely did do some good and tried to do some good. But so... Let's start out from the beginning. Phineas Taylor Barnum was born on July 5th, 1810 in Bethel, Connecticut. His dad, Philo Barnum, was a farmer, tailor, tavern keeper, and grocer. He had 10 children, by the way, two different wives. Just 10. And when I think of the name Philo, Philo or Philo, it reminded me of Parks and Rec in the scene where Tom thinks he's becoming the new Jerry and he's... He calls a a pile of papers a, yeah. a pilo, and they start calling him pilo file. <laughs> Not related to the story in any way, but I just kept thinking about that. That's hysterical. Yeah, so Bethel, where he grew up, it was really a conservative area uh, dominated by the Congregational Church. And to kind of combat this sort of conservative, boring, everyday life, men like his grandfather, who's also named Phineas, by the way, he resorted to one of the few socially permissible forms of entertainment, which we know as the practical joke. So they loved playing pranks and practical jokes on oh. each other. Yeah, PT. Br- he was the OG and practical joker. Exactly. Oh man, I love those guys. I love that. Yeah, he he recalled that his grandfather would go farther, wait longer, work harder, and contrive deeper to carry out a practical joke than for <laughs> than anything else under heaven. Like he would just do whatever it would take to pull off the best practical joke. And just wanted to spice things up, you know? Yeah, he loved his grandfather and his grandfather loved him. I mean, he said it was PT was his favorite grandson and he really was inspired by his grandpa in a lot of ways, including working for the lottery, which by the way, back then the lottery wasn't this thing what we have now where it's very regulated it was like anyone can make their own lottery (laughs) and it was almost like a big scam anyone could just be like here's a lottery give us your money and so (laughs) pt barton kind of got into that when he was 18 years old and was running a lottery this time not surprising Uh, yeah he was a super strong smart student very creative of course uh as are all of the folks that we cover but he hated physical labor. Just was like, I'll do whatever you want. I mean, same. Books, but <laughs> I do not want to work 
on the farm, which his father was doing. He wanted to work, but he wanted to use his brains, not his brawn. He he did work on his father's farm for a little bit and then in the the family owned general store. But then after his dad died, he liquidated all the family assets and then went to go work in another general store. He met his wife at this time, Charity, and they were married for 44 years. Fun fun fact. I do recall that from the film. Yeah. Maybe that was accurate. Yeah. I was, I, again, like I didn't watch the movie, couldn't get through it. I watched Jerry Springer's Ringmaster, but I couldn't watch this like (laughs) Academy Award winning movie. So that tells you something about myself. Yeah. I wasn't sure like how much the, because it seemed like the film very made it like romanticized and stuff, but they were married for a long time. So who knows? Now, when I announced this or when I, introduced him i mentioned the prince of humbugs and i just want to take a beat there because it's a word that i think we all know but i didn't really know the meaning of it so i went to research that do you know what humbug means i only know it in the context of scrooge exactly right so a humbug is a person or object that behaves in a deceptive or dishonest way often as a hoax Mm. or in jest so in Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens, when they're saying, bah, humbug, it's <laughs> it's him saying Christmas is a fraud. That's where it comes from. Oh. Or not comes from that, but that's what he's saying in there. Yeah. Why didn't we ever learn the meaning behind this I don't know. We were confused. too busy. Ugh. I don't know. Now, you may have heard the phrase, there's a sucker born every minute. And I think you've said that to me before. So <laughs> have I? I don't know. I don't recall, but it sounds on brand. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, uh, so a lot of people think that P.T. Barnum actually created this phrase because it's pretty much his whole persona. You know, he likes to just fool the public. There's a sucker born every minute. The, his biographer tried to do research to find out if this actually came from him there's no actual evidence that he said it but the gist is he just understood that the public wanted and liked to be fooled and that's a big theme throughout his life kind of like playing into the whole escapism thing it seems like he was on the early tales of that as a creator yeah the world is crazy enough so why don't you come escape from that and be in this fantasy life where things are all weird and crazy and you're entertained right So as a young adult, he moves to New York and he was running several businesses there, including the general store, book auctioning, uh, real estate, and of course, the lottery still going on there. Like I said, anyone can run a lottery at this point. It's not regulated. It's just kind of a big scam. I mean, it's kind of cool that that's how they came to be, but it's also terrifying Terrifying. that that's how they came to be. (laughs) Sucker born every minute, man. Yep. Now, there's a big pivotal moment here. And this is when I, this is at this point is where I texted you like, I don't know if I can do this. (laughs) But here we go. We're doing it. So one day, a customer comes in and enters the the general store and offers to sell P.T. Barnum a curiosity. That curiosity is a woman named Joyce Heth. She was a black woman who claimed to be 161 years old. And the former nurse to George Washington. Okay. Yeah. So just coming in to sell another human being, no big deal. Here you go. Just she was the nurse for George Washington. So Joyce was blind and almost completely paralyzed slave at this point. 
But in uh, when this was happening, it was 1835. Slavery was all, already outlawed in New York City, where they were. But P.T. Barnum kind of like found a loophole around it. And oh. uh, yeah, basically was able to lease her for a year for $1,000. That gives me the heebie-jeebies in the context of a human. Like Me I, too. Yeah. It's very troublesome. So yeah he and he started marketing her as the greatest curiosity in the world and just flooding the streets of new york with all these posters and ads and it became a big deal i mean people were intrigued by this woman she would claim herself that she would talk about you know oh george when he was a little baby and i did this so th- this was going on for a while and then uh, the interest in her kind of began to wane and he took her all throughout new england trying to get more sales claiming uh, that he was using this is so awful he claimed that he was using all the proceeds from the tour to buy her great-grandchildren out of slavery i don't think that's actually what he was doing though so pt uh, i know i know I just know that this is going to get worse if this is what we're starting out with. So I'm bracing myself for that. Uh, it, it gets weirder at this point. So the second time her celebrity kind of begins to fade, he sent an anonymous letter to the Boston press claiming that Joyce, who's, I mean, she's like a small elderly woman, that she's not a person at all, but instead an automation, which is basically like a word for a robot. <laughs> made of whalebone springs and rubber okay so (laughs) you know the fact that she's a 161 year old woman who was the nurse for george washington wasn't enough now she's a mechanical figure of sorts where did they come up with this stuff i mean honestly (laughs) he comes up with a lot of crazy it's, it's part of a i in this context i hate to even call it genius but if you take all of that out of context, the one thing that is just exceedingly clear in all of my research is P.T. Barnum was one of the first great original marketers and advertisers. Yeah. He was all about marketing and advertising and creative ways to market all throughout his life. Like that's where he got his fame and fortune from. Oh, it makes sense. So, I mean, yeah, he kind of flipped the script and was like, you want to see her now? Now she's a robot. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> Uh, it's so troublesome so yeah i mean this was like a big deal was just discussed in the press everyone wanted to know the truth behind it and she's definitely older at this point she's not 161 years old but she's definitely older and so at this point pc barnum just going to exploit it even further he announces that when she dies she will have a public autopsy so everyone can see like what the truth is behind her bro so she eventually (sighs) i know i know the disrespect so she eventually passes away in in 1936 and as promised he hosted a live autopsy of her body in a new york saloon and spectators would come and pay 50 cents and yeah. And it did, in fact, reveal that she was not 161 years old, but she was barely 80 years old. Shocking. And- <laughs> <laughs> I just like, I don't know how, I think what's troublesome to me about the whole thing, obviously, aside from the fact what he did to this woman and how he had her on display and whatnot, but the fact that he got people 
to believe him and like obviously until the autopsy but up until then he's making a pretty good fortune on all the stuff that he just made up and when you think about it that's still what marketing and advertising is today (laughs) it's just maybe 100 less controversial and you know not with robots well and even he he's clearly really good at almost like pr in a sense Mm -hmm. where he knows that people are not as interested or they might think it's bad so he's gonna flip it and find like another angle to go with and we see that over and over no, again he, with what like, he does. The original spin doctor, it seems. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So in 1941, Barnum purchases Scudder's American Museum for half of its appraised value, which this museum before just ha- like had random curiosities, animals, and they were struggling financially. But P.T. Barnum bought it and just completely transformed it using his acumen for marketing and advertising and entertainment in general, he transformed this museum into truly a spectacle. So they officially opened on January 1st, the next year. It included a zoo, a museum, a lecture hall, wax museum, theater, and a quote unquote freak show. Not a nice way to describe Mm -hmm. people. I, I was trying to find, you know, like the PC term for freak show, but so I'm going to keep using it, but it's in quotations because that's what they used. I think it's very problematic, but for all intents and purposes, we are going to use that. So his goal was to make the museum the town wonder and the talk of the town. And he said he was not above exploiting his patrons' ignorance. And he would often publish articles in newspapers claiming that the stuff that he had in the museum were fake. He was pretty like, it's not real. But then it would cause audiences to come in to like see for themselves and make sure that like they just couldn't trust what he was saying in the newspaper. So they're like, I'm going to come anyways and I'll see for my. I just repeated myself <laughs> like three times. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> but he was so good at advertising. Like he was basically the person who invented outdoor advertising oh. and advertising on buildings and stuff like that. Cause that's what he did with this museum. He would put up like lights outside and emphasize oh. like whatever was on display at the time. He would just, yeah, he, he would print off these like huge posters and often the posters he had were definitely exaggerating the attractions that he advertised. But again, it didn't stop people from returning even after they came and they found out that they were being misled. It was just so curious and fun and interesting that people wanted to know what was true and what wasn't. I feel like there have to be parallels today to similar concepts like, oh, yeah, I think it's just so ingrained in us now that we can't even think of a single everything. Everything is like so many things are over advertised. And I'm just thinking of like apparently in Arizona right now, there's a pumpkin patch. Well, they advertise it as a pumpkin patch and you go in and there's no <laughs> pumpkin patch. But like they have a, a giant pumpkin. So what, what, what? it makes me think of the same thing because people are like, oh, cute, a pumpkin patch. You know, we live in the desert. We don't really have those. And then they go and it's like, just kidding. It's just one large <laughs> pumpkin there for you to take a photo in front of. <laughs> but it's like the Why? same thing. I would be so disappointed right? because I love me a good but pumpkin patch. It's the same concept. Patches. Yep. Is it just like a big fake pumpkin? <laughs> nope. <laughs> it's not even a real pumpkin. But same thing. And it's 2020 and it's still happening. It's in the 1800s. 
but you know for sure there are a ton of people coming to pay and yep. getting a photo with that giant exactly. pumpkin for the gram. So, I mean, he would justify all of this by saying that, again, like these ads were just to draw attention to the museum. He's not, like he said, I'm, I'm not duping them. I'm just getting them to uh, like attract them to the museum. And then I entertain them once they're here. A little bit of a bait and switch there, buddy. But questionable. But okay, I guess like, I guess to do. it's like the pumpkin patch. Like you're, they're drawing people in with that, uh, but then they're just going to please the crowds with a stupid giant pumpkin instead, made out of styrofoam, probably. Oh, <laughs> great for the environment, I'm sure. <laughs> now we get to the real fun stuff, though, and fun oh, stuff. I God. mean, probably still really problematic, but. We're going to talk about some of the exhibitions he had. So one of my favorites is the Fiji Mermaid. Fiji, not it's spelled F-E-E-J-E-E. Okay. Here, I'm going to send you a photo really quick so you can be uh, just as horrified as I am. I can't wait. Okay, so this is the Fiji Mermaid. <laughs> what am I looking at right now? <laughs> What in the act? It looks like a half-eaten husk of corn <laughs> with a devil head. I don't, I don't like this at all. I'm so glad I sent it to you before explaining what it is because I think a half-eaten husk of corn. <laughs> I don't like it. Make it's it go. pretty on the nose, actually. <laughs> Make it go away. So, so the Fiji mermaid is a creature with the body of a monkey and the tail of a fish. How is that a monkey body? It's a corn body. That is not a monkey's body. Well, it has like a fish tail and those are supposed to be like fish scales on there. But then it has the torso and the head of some sort of primate. <laughs> we'll post this on social media so everyone can see it. Yeah. So everyone can be horrified by this. I mean, it, it's like a taxidermy thing i don't know composed of the here's what i have written down the torso and head of a juvenile monkey sewn to the back half of a fish i like people paid money to go see that i feel so bad for them i would scream and run away (laughs) they loved it it was presented as the mummified body of a creature that was half mammal half fish and this thing like it drew in so many crowds but i didn't know uh (laughs) I researched the Fiji mermaid, as you do. As and it's does. been in like pop culture stuff. Like it was depicted in Rob Zombie's House of a Thousand Corpses. It was on an episode in the X Files. And there's even in a Scooby Doo cartoon. Leave it episode. to Scooby Doo. Not surprised. Yeah. So that was in 1842. That comes out. Now, Jess, this one I thought was interesting because there's a gas station in Arizona that I have frequented often every time I'm out there. With also like a restaurant. What's it called? Tom's Thumb. That's right. So he followed the Fiji mermaid by exhibiting Charles Stratton, aka his a little person or a dwarf called General Tom Thumb. And he advertised him as the smallest person that ever walked alone. And at the time, Charles, aka Tom Thumb, he was only four years old. They claim that he was 11, but he's only four. So Tom Thumb was born as Charles Sherwood Stratton, and he had de- developed normally for the first six months of life, but then he stopped growing after that, and he was just 25 inches tall. I think like throughout the years, he maybe grew a couple more inches, but was around there. And he got so much attention, so much fame from 
joining P.T. Barnum that, I mean, he even like Queen Victoria saw his performances and Abraham Lincoln personally congratulated him what? on his wedding. Like <laughs> he, he was super duper famous. Yeah. So P.T. Barnum first met Stratton when he was four years old and taught him how to sing and dance and mime, how to do impersonations and stuff. And so at age five, he began touring with Barnum. And like I said, it was just a huge success. They went to Europe. So he was like an international success. Crowds would mob him wherever he went. Again, he was four or five years old and and traveling with P.T. Barnum and his crew at this point. How... That, I, that's unfathomable to me to have a toddler yeah, with you. Like he's making <laughs> money off someone that is not only he's underdeveloped for medical reasons, but he's a toddler. Like what? I know. He's not choosing that. And apparently he was drinking wine by age five, smoking cigars no. by age seven. And it was all. Stop. Yeah. <laughs> all for the, the public's amusement. I, Can, uh, I just, no, just no. <laughs> Just straight no. <laughs> Absolutely yeah. not. So they toured in Europe for three years. They came back to the U.S. and he got even more popular. So by the time he's seven years old, he's performing like grand full-length melodramas for the public. And okay. I mean, yeah, P.T. Barnum was definitely capitalizing on his small stature at first. But then over time, they grew... I don't know. It's so weird because he's so young, but... They were closer, and, and P.T. Barnum was like, this guy is an actual true performer. Like, his talents go beyond just him being s- small. He was a comedian, a dancer, an actor, and just really, he ended up being, like, super successful and actually really wealthy, too. Well, okay. There's the silver lining. Yeah. Let me send you a picture of Tom Thumb. I'd love to see Tom Thumb. Okay. So, on the left, that's uh, Tom Thumb with P.T. Barnum. Aww. Right, that's him dressed up as General Tom Thumb. He's so little. I know. It seems like he actually had a pretty good life. He ended up living until forty-five. He passed away by stroke, but he again, like he was really successful at that point. Like I said, at least that's something. At least he wasn't fully yeah. being exploited and was actually profiting off of his own touring and performances. Yeah. yeah. Good for him. Now, the Fiji Mermaid and Tom Thumb weren't the only physical oddities. There was also, I can't say this name, Josephine Boyce Deschene. And she is basically the quintessential bearded lady that we've seen in all his representations. I'm sure that was even in The Greatest Showman with Hugh Jackman. Mm -hmm. It was. Yeah. So she was billed as Madame Clofulia. She was born Joseph Boydeschein in Versailles, Switzerland. I'm saying all of this wrong. She was born hairy and apparently had a two-inch beard by age eight. These kids are developing very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> or slowly. I don't know. Yeah, what? <laughs> I'm still stuck on Tom's um, smoking cigars at age five. I know. I that part I was like, what in the actual hell? That is so awful. But I mean, again, he lived probably longer than other people in his condition. I'm. It's so strange to me. But so at age fourteen, before she even met P.T. Barnum, she was already like touring Europe because of her facial hair, uh, and she was notorious for fashioning her beard to imitate Napoleon the Third. Okay. 
apparently in return, the, Napoleon III gave her a large diamond. Like, she was that well-known at that point. Interesting. Yeah, so he she starts touring with uh, P.T. Barnum in... In 1853, she was actually taken to court because someone was claiming that she was really a man and an imposter. This is so awful. I'm sorry. But during the case, the doctors examined her, verified that she was a female, and the case was eventually dismissed. But actually, the... It's been suspected that P.T. Barnum arranged this whole thing as a as another publicity stunt, but we don't really know. Who knows? It wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, it makes me think of the whole thing with Joyce Heth and like, yeah. oh, we're going to do an autopsy and see what's real and what's not. He seems to really love the big reveal moment. Yeah. Yeah, like, definitely. Gotcha. Whether it works in his favor or not, who's to say? I mean, I think it did for the most part but he seemed to really enjoy the power behind that for sure i mean think about that again it goes i just the marketing brain in me just thinks about that when you're doing like a product launch or something you want to drum up all this excitement for the big reveal and this is definitely a different approach but hey hey jess what do you call a pickle lullaby i don't know kate tell me a cucumber slumber number (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I did not see that coming. <laughs> mm, nope. That joke may have been the worst, but Design Pickle is not the worst. Definitely not the worst. And there's a reason that Design Pickle has been ranked on the Inc. 5000 list of fastest growing companies in America for the past two years. And it's because they aren't the worst. No. Design Pickle offers flat rate, unlimited graphic design and creative services. With unlimited revisions, brand profiles, a Zapier integration, Adobe source files, all that good stuff. And we have a special deal for all of you listeners. So if you're listening to our nonsense and you need graphic design help or custom illustration help, you can use the code WORST at checkout to get $100 off your first month of any plan. That's coupon code WORST, W-O-R-S-T, for $100 off. Any plan of Design Pickle, our Essentials plan, our Pro plan, custom illustrations, just head over to designpickle.com and select the plan that's right for you and get $100 off. And get creating. Now, there's another person here who's less of the quote-unquote freak show-esque personality, but I just wanted to add it in here because um, she's someone who's just a performer, um, Jenny Lind, who's a a Swedish opera singer from the 1850s. And she eventually, uh, well, I guess she was already famous in Europe. She was already, you know, doing sold out concerts in Europe. And P.T. Barnum heard about her. He hadn't even heard her sing yet at this point, but he was like, I want her to join my crew. So he hires her as the quote unquote Swedish nightingale. And offers her $1,000 per performance. That's a pretty heavy chunk of change for those times. Yeah. So I just want to point out that we're like looking at all this stuff like, oh my gosh, this is so crazy. This is so awful. And even though it was a different time, people back then thought that too. They weren't like all like, this is cool. You can do whatever. There was a lot of criticism about P.T. Barnum and his actions. And we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later too. But he was well aware of that and he knew he kind of needed to to bolster his public image. And so he hoped that by hiring Jenny, who is already this 
well-known singer in Europe and Sweden. It would improve his public image and improve the image of the museum. But like I said, he had never heard her sing before, so it's kind of risky. But he launches this whole public relations blitz. Uh, It was in all the newspapers and a bunch of competitions. And with her talent, I mean, he ended up profiting like over half a million dollars. (laughs) Good Lord. Yeah. So there was some thoughts about May or some people suspected that they were having a romantic relationship. From what I hear, that's in the movie as well. Is that... Do you remember that? Confirmed. Yes. Well, that's pretty much all wrong. So it's really, it suggested that it was a, an all business relationship. And she was married to a pianist and they stayed together until she, she died in 1887. So, well, we're just squashing theories left and right here, aren't we? Exactly. <laughs> Doing our <laughs> best. Point, point of the show, now, I guess. This part. Just that's kind of like a little positive highlight. Now we're going to get into some darker stuff again and just nothing like I'm not going to get into some gross details, but if you're very sensitive about animal rights, then you might want to skip ahead. I know this was a part that I didn't want to. Okay, Jess and I are both like huge animal lovers, like (laughs) to a fault. So this was very hard to read and it's even harder for me to tell you, but I'm not prepared. It's it's history. So here we go. One of his most successful attractions was his large selection of living animals. And it's a huge highlight for people who are, you know, they're in the city and they've never seen exotic creatures before. But as you can imagine, the animals were just poorly treated and they were just they were poorly treated at best and neglected at worst just the standard of living okay he had beluga whales i don't even know how he got them he was like storing them in a tank in the basement Uh, how did he get them there i I don't understand but like these massive beluga whales would live in a tiny ass tank that's 500 maybe a little bit more square foot tank wow and they would just like keep dying over and over again and he would just get them replaced oh my and god just keep going you know he wasn't getting them ethically either because how would you get those ethically oh for sure so. yeah there were whales there were giraffes there was all this stuff actually i <laughs> we're not even gonna go it's just i wanted to point that out because that's a big part of the circus and that's one of the reasons why the circus has been demonized is because of the treatment of animals and he was certainly no exception. I mean, it was a huge moneymaker. It was a huge attraction. But like I said, these animals were just completely neglected. And it was a moneymaker. So if they die, you just get a new one and keep going. Ugh. Makes me want to bomb. But I quick know. side note, have you ever been to a circus? <sighs> the cl- I mean, I've been to like Cirque du Soleil shows, but I know that's not the same thing. I don't think I've been to like a real classic circus. I've been to one in my whole life and it was set up in like a parking lot when I was growing up in New York and we went and I was probably seven at the time. So it was like, it was a while ago. It was a long time ago. And all I remember is that they had animals and I remember even at seven being really sad about that. But my sister got cotton candy and (laughs) she really wanted it. But then she started crying when my mom brought it back for her because she thought it was lint from the dryer. (gasps) She didn't uh, think it was cotton candy. <laughs> I thought you were going to say she thought it was like one of the animals <laughs> like whipped up into cotton candy. No, she uh, she thought it was went from the dryer on a stick and started crying. <laughs> You're like, Delaney, just 
just try it <laughs> it's really good my mom was like you can eat it it like dissolves in your mouth it's sugar and she was like it's lint <laughs> i'm sure your mom is glad that she never actually put it into the dryer though because that sounds like a heck of a mess <laughs> to deal with later man i yeah. love cotton candy though that was like that's always been a little bit of a weakness for me and i don't love super sweet stuff but man some cotton candy can't relate i think it's disgusting (laughs) it is disgusting i I think it's very unsanitary too but man (laughs) i used to chase down the the ice cream truck to get cotton candy from that's so gross nasty Uh, nasty do you remember like what kind of animals you saw yeah they had elephants and that's when i really lost it because elephants are my favorite animal and they had multiple and they had a lion, I think, as well. And I just, I don't, when you look at it Man. now, you're like, how did anyone ever think that this is okay? I mean, seriously, it's, it sends me down a spiral. So. But it makes so much money. Yeah. Because we can't see exactly. those things. We can't see, you know, unless you go to Africa and you're Bucket in the list, Serengeti. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, at its peak, the museum was open 15 hours a day. Wow. And it was having like as many as 15,000 visitors each day. Wow. Yeah. So some like over time, there were 38 million customers and they were paying the 25 cent admission. So, yeah, it was it was just like huge. It was so popular. It was in New York City. And the so we had all these like crazy oddities going on. And like I said, P.T. Barnum knows that he wants to kind of be like, yeah, we have all this craziness, but also it's a very serious place about, you know, culture and education. So, okay. sure, you know, sure. They, <laughs> this place is like five stories. It's huge. I mean, they have a basement where they have a beluga whale. So it's not a small little place. Right. But part of it was this very elegant theater. And I oh, am saying it that way because it's, it's uh, theater R-E, not E-R. So it's theater. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they call this the, the lecture room. And this is, he, he kind of used this to, or he's trying to use this to change the public attitude about the museum itself. It was more like the highbrow area of the museum. They would put on Shakespearean dramas and morality plays. Uh, a lot of these were about the dangers of drinking. For whatever reason, P.T. Barnum was very much against alcohol Hmm. so these morality plays about alcoholism they were very popular with women at the time because alcoholism was becoming rampant among working class men Uh, but it was also like family friendly entertainment just good good lessons appropriate for all ages kind of a thing that's rich coming from him (laughs) right (laughs) right yeah i mean they also had so it's weird because it's just like trying to again the marketing angle trying to portray as a highbrow educational series but this place also had they would host shows they'd do like flower shows beauty contests dog shows Ooh. i put down poultry contest i don't even know what that is I, my imagination is going to run wild on what that means <laughs> insert joke here for that but um mm-hmm. the most popular one get ready for this they were, I can't even say it, baby contests. Oh, I just picture people holding their babies up like Simba. They were literally contests trying to find out who's the fattest baby. Oh, or the, the handsomest twins. 
man, I wonder if anyone these days, I mean, because these people probably grew up, had children of their own, and maybe generations later, they're like, well, my great, great grandma (laughs) won fattest baby at the P.T. Barnum Museum. It's like the family lore now for those people. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) So wild. And just to like add to his whole like hucksterism and, you know, tricky people a little bit at one point pt barnum noticed that people were lingering too long at certain exhibits and so he he started posting signs saying this way to the egress and people didn't know what that was i think it's like ooh, some another mysterious thing but nope it's just another word for exit yep (laughs) so he was (laughs) tricking people just to they assumed that it was like some fascinating exhibit but they ended up just outside you mentioned earlier that he really wanted to use his brains and while i don't know that he was using his brains for good you can definitely see that coming through in everything that he does like it seems like he enjoys outsmarting people or like tricking 100 percent. and i don't know if i drove this home enough but he was super inspired by his grandfather because he was the guy who was all about practical jokes and would do anything for a good solid practical joke he was very inspired by him and just continued on like wanted to fulfill that lifestyle, but on just like an even more grandiose level. But yeah, I agree. It's like he didn't want to have to work in a field and said, he's going to use his brain to sort of manipulate people and leverage other people clearly to make a lot of money. And he was very successful at it. He was, he was killing it. He was doing great in his field until the early 1850s, he invested it to develop land in this town in Connecticut and was he was like giving loans to this clock company to move into his new industrial area. But the company went bankrupt by 1856 and it took all of his wealth with it. So he's like fully bankrupt at this time. Oh, boy. Yeah. So he lost his fortune his museum back in New York also happened to burn down at this time. Oh, so some good string of events happening to our friend. Uh, Yeah. I can't, I'm not sure exactly how or why it burned down, but I will say that this is the first of many fires in his life. This is not the first one that we will encounter. Seems suspicious. I know. So after this whole issue, he started investing in this clock company in Connecticut and that went to hell. He basically was like four years of just like litigation, public humiliation. Our buddy Ralph Waldo Emerson even proclaimed at one point that his downfall showed the gods visible again. So people who didn't like him, who were criticizing him before, were like, yes, it's finally happening to him. They were celebrating that he was bankrupt and suffering at this time. They're like, Ralph was like, karma's a bitch and so are you, P.T. Mm-mm. Emerson got super sassy while he's like out in the wilderness. <laughs> Screw you. Bye. But this did not deter him. He got back on track. He started going on tours again. Uh, his buddy, General Tom Thumb, was supporting him. He came back on tours and was helping him get his money back. P.T. Barton was traveling, going on, doing lectures. I think one of his lectures, I can't confirm this, but it was like, how to make a bunch of money. So he was doing that kind of thing where he was, like, Ew, uh, <laughs> yeah, which I think we also see today. Like, yep. Fake it till you make up. And then or if you, you can't, those who can't do teach. And so, That's so <laughs> he's true. making his money back by teaching people and people are 
coming to his sessions to learn about this. He did some shady stuff where he basically pawned off his museum, the one in New York, but it was in his wife's name because she wasn't bankrupt. So he's able to do it in her name. And then over time, after he's doing these lectures and stuff, he's able to buy the museum back in just five years. That's and pretty he, impressive. Yeah. And you know what? He just went right back to what he was doing. Not skipped a beat. Just <sighs> right back into it. PT. I have no <laughs> words for this man. So as I mentioned before, P.T. Barnum is pretty aware of the public's contempt over him, his persona and his exploitation of people and animals. But he, like the lecture room, he used newspapers to kind of try to sway public opinion. Um, He had an autobiography go out in in 1854, and it sold more than a million copies. It was was huge. But he also, I know, right? But he also kept editing it he kept revising it because again like he was aware and he was trying to reframe it because in in the first publication he was very boastful about how he exploited people and duped the public and people who read it were like wow what a jerk kind of how we are now (laughs) saying that now too uh i'm not surprised that he kept editing it either because common theme alert creatives tend to do that until they feel like it's just right even if it's an autobiography so not surprising. Exactly. Your work is nope. never finished. He keeps evolving and changing and it has to yep. be perfect. Like common theme. So we don't exactly know what's true and what's not because of that. But uh, I mean, he would revise it and be like super apologetic about some of the things that he was saying, how much he exploited people. Just like, oh, I know it was so awful. But then in the next line, he'd go on to say like, yeah, but everyone's doing it. I'm just doing it better. Okay. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Again, not wrong, not entirely wrong. It still doesn't make it great, but yeah, have a little bit more remorse maybe about the things if you know that it's wrong. Yeah. So he came back uh, after his bankruptcy and he's back in the limelight, but now he, he kind of dives into politics a little bit more. So he had supported Andrew Jackson before, which... Eek. I don't know for our listeners. Uh, I'm terrible with with like politics and history, but Andrew Jackson was tied to the Trail of Tears and the forced relocation of uh, tens of thousands of Native Americans. But then the Civil War breaks out in 1861, and this totally changed P.T. Barnum's outlook on things. Like he totally flip flopped. Now we talked about a lot of the awful thing. Like, he basically had like had a slave right. with uh, Joyce. I mean, he had the workaround where he was quote unquote leasing her. But outside of that, he wasn't like an outright bigoted racist or anything like that. He was more like a normal guy just in the times it, he was in. His museum was segregated, but all the other businesses were like yeah. he wasn't alone in that. But after the Civil War, he became like a staunch abolitionist and a huge supporter of the Union. Yeah, so a little flip-flop here. He became absolutely dedicated to the idea of preserving the Union and abolishing slavery. Did not see this coming from him. I know, right? So again, I I keep saying it, but I I texted Jess at one point. She didn't know who I was covering, but I was like, I don't think I can cover this person. They're (laughs) an awful slave owner and blah, blah, blah. And I'm not saying that all the stuff that he did is okay now, because it certainly isn't. But he made it like his mission to preserve the union and abolish slavery. Like, that was very important to him. 
So he used the museum as a platform for his cause. And there would be protesters outside. People were threatening his life because of this. Mm. So at this point, he's like, I guess I'll just be in politics now. I don't know. (laughs) Guess this is my career now. Exactly. So in 1865, he won an election to the Connecticut General Assembly and worked really hard to ratify the 13th Amendment. So there you go. Well, he wins back some points in my book for this. Right? Yeah. Not all of them, but some. So I mentioned before that there were some fires. His museum had already been burned down once before. In 1864, the Confederate Army of Manhattan attempted to burn it down again. They failed. But a year later, the museum did burn to the ground. And it was like a huge, spectacular fire in New York. It was massive. This is a little dark. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But uh, (laughs) animals at the museum were seen jumping out of buildings. I mean, uh, yeah, because they're trying to escape the fire. So animals are running the streets of Manhattan. There's this fire going out. The cops come. They're shooting these animals down. Yeah. Many of the the animals just weren't able to escape the fire. Uh, They burned to their deaths and including the two beluga whales that were there and they (laughs) boiled to death in their tanks. I'm going to vomit for real. I know. I'm so sorry. I keep apologizing for it. I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't like it either. No, no, no. That's terrible. Uh, My God. Now, it was alleged that during this fire, a fireman by the name of Johnny Denham killed an escaped tiger with his axe before rushing into the building and carrying out a 400-pound woman on his shoulders. Wow. Because she was one of the exhibitions. So after this awful fire happens, it was very... uh, catastrophic but he reopens again in september of 1865 yeah i think it was a different location but guess what that one also burned down what in the world i know so at this point his museum is burned down multiple times and he's kind of like maybe i should just move on to something else and even still at this point he's not the great circus showman that we all know about he's still just like this curiosity man on your <laughs> curiosity man <laughs> the curiosity man he had a cape and everything so in 1871 he retires from the museum business and teams up with circus owners dan costello and wc Koo. together they launch barnum's grand traveling museum menagerie caravan and hippodrome in 1871 And this is where the name The Greatest Show on Earth comes from. Okay. So Barnum rebrands it as that, and he takes on full ownership within a few years. They eventually join forces with other circus managers. Uh, You may know the name James A. Bailey. Mm -hmm. I was waiting for him to come in. Another one you might not know, (laughs) James L. Hutchinson. And so they introduce Jumbo, an 11 and a half foot six and a half ton elephant from the zoological society of london i want to be jumbo's friend (laughs) you can't unless you subscribe to awful no that's that's not true (laughs) so i mean this was again a huge hit people love live animals we we know that they still do now today jumbo lived until 1885 and just was a huge hit until his death that entire time in 1887, Barnum, at this point, he's getting much older, and he agrees just to, like, give over control to the circus. At this point, they had rebranded as 
Barnum and Bailey, greatest show on earth. Yep. That's what we know it from. And it's so crazy because we're almost like wrapping up this episode. And I feel like this point, it's just like a blip in his story. Yeah. Because it was like, yeah, he joined these business partners. I will say the fun little factoid here. Because of P.T. Barnum, that was the first time that they had the circus travel by train because mm. he figured like that's the best way to move all of these exhibits, these animals, people from town to town. And that made it more popular because more people can see it. They don't have to go to one tent to see the circus. Right. So that I mean, that changed the course of history for sure. Now we see the Cirque du Soleil show that travel, they don't travel by train now, but <laughs> maybe they now do. they travel to different cities to put on shows. So at his death, critics were basically praising him at this point for all the good work he had done, calling him an icon, American spirit and ingenuity. In classic P.T. Barnum form, he asked for his obituary to be printed just prior to his death. He wanted it to be published so he could read it ahead of time and have everyone else oh, read it before on. he died. <laughs> Yeah. Egotistical uh, much? My God. And then on April 7th, 1891, he passed away. So following his death, Barnum and Bailey, the, the show was bought by the rival Ringling Brothers in 1907. And then a few years later after that, the, the two were incorporated into the Ringling Bros and Barnum and Bailey combined shows. So they like merged together. Yeah. I'm sure we can do the Ringling Brothers in another episode. Yeah. I mean, that's like a whole other ball game. But yeah, in May 2017, the, the circus that he founded delivered their final performance. And that oh. was that was it. That was his legacy. Whoa. <sighs> that was so, heavy. There was a lot. That was a lot. But it kind of leaves me with this one lingering question that I've just been losing sleep about jess maybe you can answer is pt barnum the worst i'm gonna go with a yes on this one it's not often Ooh. that i just have an outright yes for someone but to me i can't look at his work for the 13th amendment against all the other bad stuff that he did to exploit people and say mm -hmm. mm, yeah maybe he's not the worst because of that no i think he's the worst i think you can tell how selfish he was and how Mm -hmm. much he manipulated people and used the word exploited a lot. And I think that sums him up perfectly. And, you know, I think if anyone's using those adjectives to describe you, you're probably the worst. Yeah. It was uh, the, another word that kept coming up is huckster and a uh, sidebar for all of you listeners at home. My dog's name is Huckleberry. <laughs> and so I just kept laughing at that. He's a little huckster, a little but huckster. my Huckleberry is, not a huckster in the way that P.T. Barnum was. I mean, yeah, he's. I was worried about even telling the story. And then I was like, okay, there's some redemption at the end, sort of, but it doesn't, like, you still feel icky. And it's not surprising because circuses, even to this day, they kind of have those connotations of, yep. yeah, there's something shady going on over there. And we know these animals aren't being taken care of. And you still have to say that, or you don't have to say, but it's clear that he paved the way for Absolutely. these entertainment shows and exhibits and stuff like that but it seemed like he was also just aware of the awful things that he was doing and tried to use his PR mind to sort of back away from that but right. I don't know and I the, because the whole thing with him getting into politics is more kind of like a, a little blip I don't know people can change people can change but uh, it's hard with this one it I don't is know. hard and I 
I will say, despite thinking he's the worst, I do appreciate his vision and his creativity and his imagination, really. I mean, everything that he did was kind of making people's wildest fantasies and dreams, showing them how they can exist in the world. Mm -hmm. So, like, from that perspective, it does take a highly creative person to be able to carry that out and execute that vision. But the way that he went about it... Not a fan. He is certainly not the glamorized version that we see played by Hugh Jackman. Yeah. And again, Hugh Jackman, I love you. Let me know if you have a problem with this. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I I tried to watch the first 10 minutes of that movie and I was like, this is a joke. This guy was actually the worst. And yeah. we're not going to sing songs about following your dreams <laughs> and do what you can. That's exactly how the songs was, go, actually. <laughs> I think so. He was riding on the coattails of these people that he exploited, and he did help a lot of them. And there, I mean, not help them. He uh, he created careers for them. I don't know what would have happened to them if that wasn't the case. But I, you're calling it. He's the worst. I think we're gonna find more people who are probably worse. But true. uh, There it is, ladies and gentlemen. P.T. Barnum. And if you disagree with us and think maybe he's not the worst or you're a big fan of circuses, let us know at podcast.designpickle.com. We'd love to have a conversation with you about if you think he's not the worst. Especially if your name is Hugh Jackman. (laughs) All right. Well, make sure to subscribe to the show if you like what you're hearing or if you think it's deeply problematic, but you want to hear more. (laughs) Subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Give us a follow on Instagram at creatives are the worst or on Twitter at worst creatives. And we will be back next week to determine if someone is worse than I almost said Hugh Jackman. So sorry, Hugh. <laughs> nope. That's impossible. Worse than. Oh, wait, no. <laughs> We're just really butchering that right now. So sorry, Hugh. <laughs> if you think someone is worse than P.T. Barnum, we might be covering them next Monday. Find out. Until then. Goodbye. Adios. Thanks for listening to Creatives Are the Worst. If you like what you're hearing, or if you think that we're the worst, please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. We'd love to hear from you. You can also contact us directly at podcasts at designpickle.com. And a big thanks to Design Pickle for sponsoring the show. Join us next week as we once again try to answer the question, are creatives the worst? <laughs>